today is, as I've mentioned, the fourth Sunday of Advent, um, and as we have done uh, each of these weeks, um, we light the candles on our Advent wreath uh, to remind us of what we are celebrating. And so, as we mentioned, each of the candles on this Advent wreath represent something specific that we are celebrating. Um, and you may hear this week in and week out, but it's a good reminder that the circle uh, that the uh, candles are in represents the never-ending love of God that he showed to us by sending his son to earth. Uh, the four candles represent, the four on the, on the outside represent the four Sundays before Christmas Day. They represent hope, peace, joy, and love. The purple candles represent the royalty of Jesus as the Son of God, as the King of our lives. And the pink candle represents the joy of having Jesus in our lives. The light that the candles give us remind us that Jesus himself is the light of the world. And then, of course, the white candle that we'll get to light uh, next week on Christmas Day is the Christ candle, which represents the purity of Jesus. And so today on, the, today on this fourth Sunday of Advent, um, we light the fourth candle in our Advent wreath, the candle of love. God's steadfast love has been made known to us through his son, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for all people. As scripture says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that we all would believe in him, or to the end that all who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We can never comprehend how vast and how high and how deep and how wide the love of God is. pray over this uh, candle lighting. Ever-loving God, you made us in your image, and you have called us to be your people, marked by your love. Light our hearts on fire with such a love for you, and allow that love to pour into all our relationships, that the world might know your vast and unrelenting love. So I hope that everyone has had a blessed Advent uh, season so far. Uh, usually this day, the fourth Sunday of Advent, is the last Sunday of Advent. And, and it actually is this year too. Um, it's usually our last Sunday before Christmas. Um, and so typically, because of that, uh, we usually do most of our uh, Christmassy songs and mine and Stephen's favorite Valley of Vision prayer. We do all those like super Christmas things on the Sunday uh, the fourth Sunday of Advent, which is usually the last Sunday uh, before Christmas. But this year, if you don't know, uh, if you haven't looked at a calendar lately, Christmas Day falls on a Sunday. Um, and so today technically is still the last Sunday of Advent, if you follow the church calendar. But this is not the end of our celebration of, of Christmas here at Vintage. You know, I'm actually excited about Christmas falling on a uh, Sunday this year. The last time that happened uh, was, I believe, six years ago in 2016. Um, that year was the first time that that had happened since I had been leading worship on Sunday mornings and we had kids at the same time. Um, and I thought, I thought it was going to be chaotic, you know. I thought it was going to be kind of nuts trying to, trying to do all of the normal things that we do on, on Christmas Day uh, and making it to Sunday morning gathering, and not just showing up, but like also leading the music and all that. Um, and I thought it was going to be kind of chaotic, but honestly, 
like I kind of loved it. I really did. Um, I'm looking forward to it this year because, you know, it can be so easy for us, even as Christians, to get so caught up in the hustle and bustle and all the other cool stuff that we love about Christmas uh, that we miss what it's supposed to be about. And when Christmas Day falls on a Sunday, we have to intentionally take, no, we don't have to, but we get to intentionally take time to specifically celebrate the incarnation of our Lord and Savior. And I think that it can really put things into perspective. Uh, and it can make Christmas more meaningful than it is on other years. It should always be meaningful. But when we have that time specifically carved out for that purpose, it can make it more meaningful. I've seen conversations on, and, and articles and things on the internet in the last few weeks. Uh, churches uh, trying to decide, do we have a church on Christmas Day? You know, should, should we get together? I want you to know that wasn't even a conversation that we had here at Vintage because it's the Lord's Day. It's the Lord's Day. We're going to be, you know, we're going to meet. And I know people have travel plans and whatever. I'm not trying to guilt anybody, but that wasn't a, that wasn't even something we considered because it's the Lord's Day. I mean, we can't say Jesus is the reason for the season except for when Christmas falls on a Sunday. You know, I mean, that's the whole point of the thing. Um, a friend of mine shared a post by a guy named Dale Partridge on Facebook this week. It said, "Canceling church to celebrate Christmas." Is like avoiding your wife to celebrate your anniversary, which, happy anniversary, Stephen Alexi. Um, 18 years, exciting. He said it's illogical, and I agree with that, right? You can't avoid your wife to celebrate your anniversary. We can't not have our Sunday church gathering uh, in order to better celebrate the birth of Christ. It doesn't even make sense. Um, and so what better way for us, then, to celebrate uh, Christmas, the incarnation of our Savior, than by gathering with the church? We can, we can get together and we can sing glory to the newborn king together on, on the morning that we mark that for. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir. Uh, you guys are here, and I expect to see a lot of you next Sunday. But if you, uh, if you know someone who goes to a church who's canceling their services next Sunday, um, tell them they ought to find a new church, and they're welcome here at Vintage probably because uh, we have our priorities straight here. Uh, but no, no, seriously, people are welcome here because um, we're going to be here, and we're going to celebrate our newborn king together next Sunday morning. So we hope to see you. Um, if you can make it. Um, this year, I've really enjoyed our Advent series, Christ the True and Better. Um, it is so encouraging anytime we have the opportunity to look throughout Scripture and see how it centers on Christ and how we can see that the birth of Christ that is certainly worthy of celebration, it's not the starting point of God's redemptive plan for his people, but it's the culmination of, of, of sort of the, the end of it. Or not, not really the end, but it's, it's a major point, but it's not the beginning, right? We see the beginning way back in Eden. And in fact, Ephesians tells us before the foundations of the world were laid. So God always had this plan of redemption. We see it unfold throughout all of scripture and we see Christ at the center of that redemptive plan. And so it's, it's encouraging to me uh, to see that. Um, I hope that it's been encouraging to you too. These last few weeks, as we've looked at the lives of Adam and Isaac and Moses, and today we're going to look at David. Um, and I hope it's been encouraging for you to see how, uh, when we explore these Old Testament figures, we can see how they point to the promised Messiah. In Bryce's sermon a couple of weeks ago, uh, he, he briefly referenced Luke 24. Uh, it wasn't a main point, but that's, uh, that is the, uh, the story in Luke after Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, when he appears to some of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And I went back and read that passage this week, and I want to read it for you uh, before we jump in, into what we're going to talk about about uh, David this morning. Now, Again, uh, in this passage, 
Uh, it's Resurrection Sunday. Jesus is, is alive. He's, he's, he's resurrected. Not everybody knows that yet, though. So, the, the, of course, the women who went to the tomb have, have seen uh, the angels and everything. Um, but everyone doesn't know it, uh, and the disciples have not yet seen the risen Christ. So uh, I just want to read this passage to you from Luke 24, starting in verse 13. You don't have to turn there. You can, but I'm going to read it to you. It says, That very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to him, What things? Like Jesus doesn't know. And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going far farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, watch this, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us? while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. I mean, isn't that an amazing story? Like, I know that's an Easter story, and this is Christmas, but isn't that an amazing story? Jesus himself opens the scriptures with his disciples, and he shows them all the things in the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus preached Christ the true and better sermon series to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and I can imagine how much better of a job he did than me and Bryce and Stephen has done. So you might say that he preached the true and better Christ, the true and better sermon series. I mean, I can just imagine Jesus talking to them about, about Adam and about Isaac and about Moses and about David and about these countless others. And Jesus saying, see, see, there I am. That was me. And somehow they still didn't get it, but when Jesus takes the bread... And he breaks it and he gives it to them. A light bulb goes off and they remember. They remember what happened just a few nights before. They knew that it was Jesus. And they said that their hearts burned within them when he opened the scriptures. And he explained all of this. 
Their hearts burned within them. Church, that is my hope for us when we open the scriptures, that our hearts would burn within us. When we look from Genesis to Revelation and we see Jesus, that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see God's redemptive plan through his son in every verse of every scripture. And that our hearts would indeed burn within us like it did for the disciples. When we see the little flashlight that the Old Testament stories shine onto God's redemptive plan, we can rejoice. We don't have a flashlight, church. We have the full sunlight of the incarnate Son of God. You know, when we learn to view all of Scripture through this lens, the lens of Christ, it should make our hearts burn within us. This series has just been a tiny glimpse of that, but I hope that it's inspired you to dig deeply into God's word, to see God's redemptive plan throughout his entire word that centers on the incarnate Son of God. As the Jesus Storybook Bible says, every story whispers his name. And when you learn to read scripture through that lens, your heart will burn. I mean, in a good way, it'll, it'll burn within you because you'll be, you'll be longing for Jesus more. And so today, as we have done over the last few weeks, we're going to look at one more Old Testament figure. Today we're going to look at King David. We didn't sing the song that inspired this series because we've sang it a bunch of weeks now. Uh, we give you all a one-week break on it. Um, but the last verse is about King David. And today we're going to look at how David is a type of Christ the promised Messiah to come. And as Bryce explained a few weeks ago, um, when we say, when we use this word type, that's a, that's a theological term, um, we are saying that a person in the Old Testament behaves in a way that corresponds to Jesus' character or Jesus' actions. So that's what it means to be a type of Christ. It's like a foreshadowing of Jesus. Today we're going to look at how David is that for us. The, the lyrics to the verse from that Christ and true, the true and better song, uh, the fourth verse says this, Christ, the true and better David, lowly shepherd, mighty king, he, the champion in the battle, where, O death, is now thy sting. In our place he bled and conquered. Crown him Lord of majesty. His shall be the throne forever. We shall heir his people be. You know, the name of David is an extremely common name in the Bible. In fact, uh, I've searched the ESV.org uh, online thing, and there's 851 occurrences of the name of David uh, in the ESV. Um, there's like 900-something of the name of Jesus. So other than Jesus, the name of David is the most frequent name in all of Scripture. Um, if you've read your Old Testament, uh, you know that David's a main character. In fact, he's the main character of four Old Testament books, First and Second Samuel and First and Second Chronicles. David wrote at least half the songs that are, Psalms, excuse me, that are directly attributed to him, and he probably wrote more than that. Um, scripture describes David as a man after God's own heart. And of course, as we'll discuss in a moment, David was the quintessential king of Israel. He was the one who uh, God promised him that his throne would be established forever. So clearly, David is an important figure in the Bible. As I hope we'll see today, David's not just, though, important in his own right. David is even more important because of how he points to Jesus. 
Now, there's a lot of scriptures that describe the significance of David and then help us see those parallels. But today I want to read from Peter's sermon at Pentecost. So today you get Easter, you get Christmas, and you get Pentecost. It's, a, it's an exciting day. Uh, I'm going to read from Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 um, to help us see how Christ indeed is the true and better David. So this is Acts 2, through 36. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brothers, I I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being, therefore, a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he, that's David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let's pray before we jump into this. God, it is incredible to see uh, the, uh, the crimson thread that ties together all of Scripture. God, to see that somehow even David knew that you were sending one greater than him. Lord, that when you promised him that you would establish his throne forever, Lord, he knew somehow there was something supernatural at work. God, may we see that today too. Lord, may we not merely see with, with fleshly eyes. God, may we see with spiritual eyes. Lord, would you open our hearts to understand uh, how all of Scripture points to Jesus. God, and specifically as we look at David today, Lord, would you help us to see these parallels, not just because they're neat or interesting or some sort of academic pursuit. God, because they show us more clearly who Christ is and all that he's done. Lord, may we be amazed at how uh, your word, uh, Lord, it tells one grand narrative of your redemption of your people for your own glory. Lord, may we see that more clearly today. God, may it make us more appreciative for all that you've done for us. Lord, may may it motivate us to go out and proclaim the good news of great joy. That Christ has come to rescue us. In Jesus' name we pray. So we know a lot about the life of David. In fact, we know 
more about the life of David than we do almost any other uh, Old Testament figure. He's, again, he's the main character of four books of the Bible. Um, and outside of Jesus, I don't know if we can say that. Well, Paul wrote most of the New Testament. But as far as narrative books, uh, we got a lot about the, the life of David. Um, there is much more about the life of David than we could cover in a single sermon. So I'm not going to attempt to do that uh, for you today. But there are a few key ways in which, in which David specifically points to Jesus. And they show us, indeed, how Christ is the true and better David. And so I want to point out a few things about David that both apply to him, um, but, the, but they also apply to Jesus in a more significant and a more ultimate sense. Um, and so the first thing I want you to see today is that David and Jesus both conquered the enemy. Now, I'm, I venture to, to guess that when most people think of David, if you had to just think of one story, you're your mind probably goes to David and Goliath. At least it does for me. I mean, there's other stories, but that's the sort of quintessential David story. You know, if you ask a kid uh, who you know, knows about the Bible, what, they, what about David? Oh, yeah, David and Goliath. So we have this story of young David defeating this Philistine giant with a sling and a stone, which is an incredible story. Uh, it's also a very familiar story. Um, in fact, you don't even have to go around, grow up in or around the church to know that story um, because it's, it's kind of just a cultural norm. Um, so I'm not going to read the whole thing for you because I assume you know most of that story. But I do want to read a piece of it. Uh, so this is 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 41. It says this. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David. So that's, that's Goliath, right? With his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And that's, we go on to read, that's exactly what David did. He swung a stone at Goliath. It hits him in the forehead. It knocks Goliath down. And then David goes and takes Goliath's sword, he chops off Goliath's head, and he takes his head to Jerusalem. And that part usually doesn't make it into the kids' version of the story, but that's what happens. <laughs> Cuts off his head. And so we have the army of Israel there, cowering in fear, and yet young David defeated him with just a sling and a stone. Because, as he said, he knew that the battle belonged to the Lord. Now, one common way that uh, this story is taught is that you ought to be brave like David, right? You need to face your giants in God's strength. And that is, if we read these stories like Aesop's fables, that's a reasonable assumption, right? It's a story about bravery, you know. Um, but remember, all of Scripture points to Jesus. And I'm certainly not the first po person to point this out. Um, you've probably heard this from this pulpit before. The main point of this story is not the, 
only, I mean, it's not, a, not totally irrelevant, but the main point is not that you just need to be brave like David. The main point of this story is that you need someone to stand in your place to defeat the enemy for you. I mean, if you want to look for yourself in the story, and that sort of parallels there, we're not David. Like, we don't parallel him. We're the cowards. We're the people cowering in fear, the Israelites, who, would not, who could not defeat the enemy. They had no will or ability to do so. And they needed a substitute to fight the battle in their place. The hero of this story, David, he doesn't represent us. The hero represents Jesus. And so we should be careful when we read the Old Testament not to sort of allegorize these stories so that we can see ourselves trying to imitate the hero of the story. I mean, if we want truly to find how we, how we fit into these stories, look for the person who messed up the most, and that's you, and that's me, right? And the person who, who fixed it all, that's Jesus. If we're looking for those parallels, we are the ones who mess it up. That's a much more accurate parallel to the role that we play uh, in our own stories, right? We are, the one, we are, we are uh, totally depraved. We have nothing to offer God, but we have a redeemer. We have someone who stood in our place and fought for us. And indeed, uh, we have a conqueror who has come to defeat our enemy for us. His name is Jesus. He was the only one who could defeat the enemy of Satan and, and, and of sin and the world. Like David, despite the inability and the unwillingness of the people to defeat the enemy, Jesus came in the name of the Lord of hosts. And by his own merits, he conquered the enemy that we could not. And both Jesus and David conquered the enemy in the most unlikely of ways. Of course, David did it by offering himself before the enemy with just a stone. Jesus, on the other hand, defeated the enemy by offering up himself upon the cross, laying down his very life. And through his death and resurrection, Paul tells us that Christ's victory becomes our victory. In fact, we don't just have a conqueror. Paul says in Romans 8 that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He says that neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor death nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, we are more than conquerors through Christ. Because Christ is the ultimate conqueror over our vanquished foe, we are more than conquerors through him. So that no enemy in all of creation can undo the victory and love that he has accomplished on our behalf. We have a much mightier conqueror than a young boy with a sling and a stone. We have a resurrected conqueror. And one day he will return and he will complete his conquest over all things. And we will get to enjoy the spoils of his victory forevermore. And church, that is good news. We have a conqueror who has defeated the enemy. Not only do we see these parallels that David and Jesus defeated the enemy when the people could not, we also see that both David and Jesus established a kingdom. That's our second point. They established a kingdom. Now, you might have a qualm with me here. If you know your Old Testament history, you know David was not the first king of Israel, right? Who was that? Anybody? Saul. It was King Saul. Um. Saul was the king that God gave his people when the people demanded a king. 
the people of God wanted a king to be like all the other nations around them. And so God gave them that request. The the prophet Samuel wrote, uh, when they did that, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And so it was the people's rejection of God as their king that led to God giving them Saul as their king. Now, God is sovereign, and it it was all part of his plan. It seems that God always intended to give his people a king. But uh, Saul was sort of the, okay, you're going to get what you asked for, king. Needless to say, if you read about the life of Saul, it did not work out so well for God's people when they demanded a king and God gave them Saul. Saul was seemingly given by uh, God as king as an act of judgment for God's people rejecting him. Uh, Now, again, it does seem that God always had a plan to give his people a king in his own time. Uh, The people were, were, were not patient, though. And then after Saul's failure and his rejection as king... God does give the people uh, the true king. He gives them David. And David became like this quintessential king of Israel. Now, David was a man of many, many moral failures that we'll talk about in a moment. But he did reign over a new period of major prominence for the people of Israel. Um, And that continued and grew even greater under his son, King Solomon. And so David sort of brought in uh, the, the real kingdom, all right? The, he has, uh, established the kingdom, if you will, even though he wasn't the first king. Now, despite David's incredible reign over God's people, we do see clearly that he was far, very far from perfect. Um, he was a rampant polygamist, we see. Uh, and in perhaps his greatest documented sin, David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Then he had her husband murdered in battle to cover it up. Or to try to. And yet somehow scripture calls David a man after God's own heart. It's kind of wild. Um, and, and we know all these things about David. All, these, all, this is, all the ways he messed everything up. And yet God promises David that his throne would last forever. Um, in the passage that Colleen read for us earlier in 2 Samuel 2. God promises him, uh, you and your house, uh, excuse me, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so God gives David this promise that his throne will be an everlasting one. The psalmist reiterates this in Psalm 89. He says, uh, it's God speaking. He says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. And I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. So it's, it's strange to see these incredible promises made to David and the incredible moral failures of David. How can it be? How can it be that this prominent but deeply flawed man gets such an incredible promise? Well, for starters, he didn't get that promise on his own merits, right? But also, it can be difficult for us to understand that unless we realize that the kingdom that God established through David... Uh, at least in the short term, was a temporary earthly kingdom. But it foreshadowed the eternal kingdom that would ultimately be established by Jesus many generations later, who, as we know, was an heir of the, in, in the bloodline of David. Um, multiple gospels trace the lineage of Jesus, and they trace him much further back than David, but to David. And we even know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, same city that David was from. So there's both a temporary earthly kingdom, but an eternal kingdom that God was establishing through the bloodline of David. 
Now, David's kingdom, the the kingdom of Israel there in that part of the world, this sort of limited by time and space kingdom, it ultimately failed. But God tells us that the throne of David would last forever through Christ. In fact, the, the familiar messianic prophecy of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 9 says, Unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. That means he will rule, right? His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so... It seems that even David knew that this promise that God gave him of an everlasting throne had a deeper meaning than just an earthly kingdom that was confined to the Israelites. Peter tells us in that passage I read to you from Acts 2. He says that David being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Isn't that wild? Peter says that David spoke specifically about the resurrected Christ. And it is in Christ that the eternal throne of David finds its eternal king. You know, it took a while for God's people to understand this, right? They wanted a king who would reign right now on this earth, like David. In John 6, after Jesus fed the 5,000, it says that the people tried to take Jesus and to make him king, but he wouldn't let them. It says that, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Then later, uh, after Jesus is arrested, he stands before Pontius Pilate before he's crucified. and, And Pilate and Jesus are speaking, and Jesus tells him, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. The pilot says to him, so are you a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So Jesus tells us that he is the king, but his kingdom is not of the world. He is the eternal king. And he is the king of a kingdom that will last forevermore. And it will never fail. Jesus inaugurated that kingdom when he died and when he resurrected from the grave and when he ascended into the heavens. And one day, Jesus will return to consummate his eternal kingdom. And in the meantime, he taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Church, we have a much greater conqueror than David. We have a much greater king than David because we have a perfect, righteous king. You know, the the best form of government, like, we, the reason I think we believe in a democratic republic that we live in, live in is because we believe that people are evil, right? And we have to distill the power down, uh, like disperse it amongst people because it, it, um, it suppresses our evil impulses. But the best form of government is actually a monarchy with a perfect king. And one day we'll have that church. We'll live forever under a monarchy with a perfect king, a sovereign king. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess this truth. That he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And so we see the parallels between David and Jesus as our conqueror and as our king. 
But we also see lastly today that both David and Jesus brought the presence of God. That's our third and final point today. They brought the presence of God. Now in the Old Testament, the presence of God dwelled in the Ark of the Covenant. And if you read um, uh, the accounts of Moses' life, you can read the, um, the description of that. It's very, I mean, it's very, very detailed, right? The Ark of the Covenant, if you remember, uh, was this beautiful wooden chest. It was covered in gold. It had these beautiful golden angels on top of it. Uh, inside of it were the Ten Commandments, like the actual tablets that God delivered the Ten, uh, the Ten Commandments to Moses on. Um, Hebrews also tells us there was some of the manna uh, and I believe Aaron's staff, if I'm not mistaken, inside of this Ark of the Covenant. And this beautiful, ornate wooden box represented the literal presence of God. And they placed the Ark of the Covenant inside of the Holy of Holies. That was the most holy place inside of uh, the tabernacle when God's people didn't have a place. And then inside the temple uh, after Solomon built the temple for God. That was the most holy place. And in fact, the only one who could go into the Holy of Holies was the, the high priest. They could go in there one day of the year. On the Day of Atonement, they could go into there to make sacrifice on behalf of God's people. So it's um, this Ark of the Covenant was the physical representation of the very presence of God in the Old Testament. Um, and God commanded his people to keep the ark in the Holy of Holies in, in a place of prominence, right? I mean, it's the presence of God. It's not like just some relic. It's the presence of God. But over time, as God's people had undergone, you know, been through various turmoils and battles and things, the ark had gotten moved around, kind of got shuffled from place to place. So by the time David becomes the king of Israel, the ark was not where it was supposed to be. In fact, King Saul, again, the, the king that God gave his people to, to pour out his judgment on them, really, he, for the most part, ignored the Ark of the Covenant, which seems like a very strange choice for this king who's supposed to be leading God's people to not care so much about the presence of God, the most significant place where God dwelled. And he basically just ignored it altogether. A pretty good indicator that he wasn't leading in, in the power of God. So... David becomes king, and very shortly thereafter, he decided to remedy that problem, to bring the Ark of, Co the, Ark of the Covenant to its rightful place in Jerusalem. Um, there's several accounts of this, uh, because it gets moved like in like phases or whatever, but it finally gets there. Uh, and in 2 Samuel 6, it says that David went and brought up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and, and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. In fact, David was so excited that the ark was being brought to its rightful place, he danced before the Lord in his underwear. And his wife thought it was disgraceful. And he said, I'll become more undignified than this. He didn't care. He was excited that the will of the Lord was being done. And he worshiped. And the people of God rejoiced because once again, the presence of God was with them as it always should have been. And you know, and as important as the Ark of the Covenant was, 
We know, because we have the fullness of God's revelation in Scripture, we know that the Ark of the Covenant, as important as it was, was just a representation. It was a symbol of the presence of God. As I mentioned, only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies one day each year where the Ark of the Covenant dwelled to make atonement for God's people. And the bringing of the Ark back to Jerusalem paled in comparison to what Jesus accomplished when he died on the cross in that same city, Jerusalem. David may have been a man after God's own heart, but Jesus was the heart of God. And the Gospels tell us that when Jesus died, you know, the the ark was still there, right? It was inside the temple behind this curtain that kept everyone out um, except for the high priest on the day of atonement. And the Gospels tell us that when Jesus breathed his last, that the curtain, the veil to the Holy of Holies was torn in two from top to bottom. It's the very curtain that was the entrance into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, dwelled. Jesus tore it wide open. He gave us access to the presence of God by his shed blood. For he is our great high priest, the one who could offer himself as the eternal sacrifice. Jesus was the ultimate high priest who accomplished our everlasting atonement. He didn't do it one day a year. He did it once and for all. And his atonement, only his atonement, was sufficient enough that the presence of God was then made accessible by all who would trust in him forevermore. Jesus tore the veil to the presence of God, so we have access to the presence of God by his blood. Hebrews 9 says that Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. See, by his sacrifice, Jesus brought the presence of God to all those who would believe in him. He didn't just bring a representation that a select few could enter into. Jesus brought the presence of God to all who would believe in him. And when Jesus returns to consummate his eternal kingdom, the angel in Revelation, watch this, he says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord, of our Lord and of his his Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. And then he says, God's temple in heaven was opened And the Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple. It's wide open. It is wide open. The presence of God is not confined there. It is wide open and it is accessible to all those who trust in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Church, there is no barrier to the presence of God anymore. The door to the Holy of Holies stands wide open to all those who would trust in Christ as Lord. Jesus, our great high priest, offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice so that this barrier to God's presence would be torn in two from top to bottom, that it would be made accessible to all those who would believe in him. And church, that's really what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate that the presence of God is with us, Emmanuel, God with us. At the end of the age, at the second advent of Christ in Revelation 21, we find these words guaranteeing 
the presence and the promise of God with us for all eternity. It says in Revelation 21 that, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Isn't that a great promise? That God is not only with us, he's not only come to rescue us, but he will dwell with us for all eternity? The promise of God's presence dwelling among us is why we celebrate the advent of our Emmanuel. I've read this before, but I love it. Spurgeon wrote about Emmanuel. It says, Emmanuel, God with us. It is hell's terror. Satan trembles at the sound of it. Let him come to you suddenly, and do you but whisper that word, God with us, and back he falls, confounded and confused. God with us is the laborer's strength. How could he preach the gospel? How could he bend his knees in prayers? How could the missionary go into foreign lands? How could the martyr stand at the stake? How could the confessor own his master? How could men labor if that one word were taken away? God with us is eternity's sonnet. Heaven's hallelujah. The shout of the glorified. The song of the redeemed. The chorus of the angels. The everlasting oratorio of the great orchestra of the sky. God with us. Church, that is the song of the redeemed. That's why we sang it earlier. God is with us. And we remember the coming of Jesus during this season. But may we dwell on what it means that God is with us. And there is nothing except uh, stiff necks and stubborn hearts that stands between us and the free gift of grace that Jesus offers us. Jesus, the very heart of God, not only came to dwell among us as a helpless infant, but he made possible the dwelling of God within the hearts of all those who would believe in his promise of salvation. Matthew 4 says, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And that is true for us. We have seen a great light. We have seen the heart of God. His name is Jesus. A light has indeed dawned in the coming of Christ. And as we see the shadows of the redemptive plan of God all throughout his word, let us rejoice, church. Let us rejoice that the light of life eternal has come into the world. And it has overcome the darkness. And if you've trusted in Christ, it's overcome the darkness in your heart too. It has opened the presence of God to you. If you don't know what that means, Christ died for you. He shed his blood for you. Would you trust him? Let's pray. God, thank you for all that you've done for us in Jesus. God, that though we are unwilling and stubborn and cowardly, Lord, he has defeated the enemy for us. Lord, thank you that uh, though the the governments and the the rulers of this world are temporary, that he established an everlasting kingdom. Lord, that your word says we will reign alongside him. Oh God, but thank you most of all that he opened your presence to us. God, that he made a way for us to know you by his shed blood. God, we thank you that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God, that there is no barrier between us and you because Christ has paid the penalty for our sin. God, may we wonder at how low our Redeemer was brought 
in humbling himself to take on the form of a servant or to become a helpless baby. God, but even lower in taking on the, the death that we deserve. Lord, may our hearts burn within us when we see all that he has done for us. God, when we open your word and we see Christ there, Lord, let our hearts burn. Lord, and let our lips rejoice for what you have done. Lord, your grace, Lord, it is more than we can comprehend. Lord, it's more than we can describe. But it is so good and it is so sweet. Lord, may we celebrate your grace during this season. Lord, as we enjoy everything else uh, that we have, that, that we get to do during this season, Lord, our families and good food and all these celebrations, Lord, may we remember most of all Jesus. God incarnate, here to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Now, thank you for all that you have done for us through him. Lord, would you make us a people who proclaim the goodness of your grace to those around us, that we sing the good news of great, joys, great joy proclaimed by the angels. God, that people will be drawn to you for your glory's sake, that they would trust in the saving work of Christ in their place. Lord, be glorified by what we continue to do here today. Draw us to yourself. And God, thank you uh, for your presence that you offer freely to us by your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we, Jesus, we pray. Amen.